The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Wednesday, January 2nd, 2019. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The second day of our new year, the 13th day of the government shutdown, our long national nightmare. Well, not maybe exactly a nightmare. It's more like waking up for a drink in the middle of the night and taking a couple more minutes to get back to sleep than you'd like. But then when you do, you get a bit of neck pain. Our long national that thing that I just described drags on. Look, it's not that I'm insensitive to the pains of the shutdown. It's that the vast majority of Americans are insensitive to said pains. There are costs. Don't buy that there aren't costs. It is hurting the macro economy. It is diminishing the fees the government takes in. The government needs money. It's either going to have to tax you more or go deeper into debt. There are all these unseen functions that the government does that people actually do need. A HUD approval here, a small business loan there, a Bureau of Engraving work order over yonder. But this doesn't register beyond the general sentiment of, oh, government, there's a shambles. These clowns in Washington can't get along, which doesn't punish or favor any actor, even the actor who said, you know what I'll say? Yes. If we don't get what we want one way or the other, whether it's through you, through a military, through anything you want to call, I will shut down the government. Okay, absolutely. Enough. And we I am disagree. proud, and I'll we tell you disagree. what, I am proud to shut down the government for border security, Chuck. The sympathetic stories you hear of those victimized by the shutdown include Native Americans who need medical care, people who rely on the Department of Agriculture's nutrition assistance programs. In other words, the most vulnerable. But guess what? The people who know or care about the most vulnerable are already blaming Trump. It's not going to move the needle. So in negotiations, they speak of things called pressure points or pain points. And the problem, as perverse as this may seem, the problem in why this shutdown is still going on, why they're not shutting down the shutdown, the problem is there is not enough widespread pain to prod the talks along. Although the national parks are dealing with a veritable shitstorm. The vault toilets in the parks, and there are a few flush toilets, so the vault toilets are near capacity, and there is no one there to empty them at the Joshua Tree National Park, so that park will be shutting down and shitting up. I did read this sentence in the Washington Post. Quote, once those porta potties fill up, there is no amount of cleaning that will save them, says Sabra Purdy, who owns a rock climbing service there. At that point... I think I'm going to have to tap out, tap out, pass out. Anyway, it reminds me of the old saying, caca flows downhill. And like the bard told Woodward and Bernstein, follow the feces. And in this case, it's coming from all the way at the top. On the show today, I spiel about the leaked Louis C.K. set and the techniques he once used that he's now incapable or uninterested of employing. But first, a political scientist who served in the CIA during the presidencies of Bill Clinton and George W. Bush. He was a manager, an officer, an intelligence briefer. He's been on top of the latest Mueller investigation, while at the same time, he's looking back. David Priest has a new book out. It's called How to Get Rid of a President. It's so astute that some in D.C. have been heard muttering, who will rid us of this meddlesome priest? Not the gist. He's up next. 
Peanut butter, well, that's how to get rid of gum in the hair. A tomato juice bath, that is how to get rid of uh, when you get sprayed by a skunk or when your golden retriever does. But how to get rid of a president? Hmm, they've tried guns and bombs and flying an airplane into the White House. They actually kind of tried that. It was thwarted. They've tried impeachment. They've tried freezing the president out. They've tried denying the president a renomination. And everyone's favorite, president loses at the ballot box. A new book called How to Get Rid of a President is subtitled History's Guide to Removing Unpopular, Unable, or Unfit Chief Executives. The author is David Priest. Hello, David. How are you? Hello. How are you? So which president would be a tomato juice bath? Who would that apply to? You know what? Let's go with one of the lesser known ones because no one will be able to call us out. Uh Let's say Franklin Pierce. (laughs) That's his thing. So I love the uh, parts about um, Tyler and Taylor. And this Mm -hmm. is just a strong legislative branch. And, you know, even early, even maybe Monroe, a strong legislative branch just denies Mm -hmm. the guy his agency. But with the presidency Mm -hmm. becoming more powerful, is that even possible anymore? It, it is possible. There's no reason that we can't revert back to the Article One legislature doing its job. And it's been an aberration for a while. We have the imperial presidency and all of these powers both being taken by and being granted to the executive branch. But there's no reason it has to be that way. In fact, some people thought with the election of 2016 that we would institutionally see that happening. Hasn't worked out, but nothing's stopping it. What about the Andrew Johnson lesson? Is that so far away as to be inapplicable to today? Yeah, the the backstory on Andrew Johnson quickly was that he came into office when Abraham Lincoln was, was shot and killed. But he was from a different party, and he was generally an asshat. He didn't treat people well, even his own friends. I think they were called doe faces, but you, the, the technical term was asshat? We, we'd have to find the primary <laughs> sources, but I believe that's the connotation. And... He definitely didn't get along with anybody, including people he needed to get on his own side, people who were inclined to believe uh, in him still. He alienated them. So he ended up becoming the first impeached president because he just couldn't seem to get along with anybody. Now, that was a case, yes, of Congress exerting itself. I mean, they, they impeached him. They came damn close to removing him. But it was also a case of institutional restraint because the Republicans had a two-thirds majority in the Senate, which is enough, according to the Constitution, to remove a president who has been impeached. And they still didn't do it because they thought that they could do just as well if he was in office for a few more months and then they get their own guy in. Is the failed conviction, so impeachment failed conviction, did that in any way change the conception of the threshold to impeach a president? And what I specifically mean is there was no underlying crime. There were misdeeds and he was a terrible president and hated. But, you know, it's kind of vague in the Constitution as to the definition of high crimes and misdemeanors. So did this change anyone's mind about the threshold for impeachment? You know, it didn't seem to. I found some of the contemporary accounts that talked about why some of the representatives and senators later regretted their votes one way or another, but almost always they regretted it in terms of impeaching him and then voting to convict. But it didn't seem to change the national conversation about impeachment. It was still seen that the impeachment by the House of Representatives itself was a stern rebuke. And it was thought that very impeachment led to a change in the behavior of Andrew Johnson. He was a little bit less of a jerk after this. It seemed like this was his wake-up call, not to mention that he made some promises about things he would do better in order to avoid conviction and removal. But it didn't seem to change the notion of impeachment itself 
as a rebuke. That came much later with Bill Clinton's impeachment. You know, you mentioned there in that answer that the impeachment itself, I think with uh, President Clinton, it was seen as a failed process, that there was an impeachment and no conviction. And, you know, what a, what a, what a shame that was and what egg on the face Congress had. And it would just be seen as, I, I guess, an indictment, no conviction, and the prosecutor would get uh, embarrassed. But back then, um, it wasn't seen that way. It seemed to have worked. And also the founding fathers, I guess there's some evidence that were that process to play out, even the founding fathers would say, well, that's fine. That's what we had intended. Absolutely. Impeachment doesn't seem to have been intended as only worth it if you get a conviction. The idea was the impeachment itself is a slap across the face. Bill Clinton politically was a master of this, which is he found that he could use the impeachment as a rallying point. His popularity ratings rose during his impeachment and his trial in the Senate such that he had higher popularity rating at the end than he did at the beginning of that process. So what, what does that leave us in the modern sense? Everyone who has a memory of that, including some senators who are still on Capitol Hill now, they have the memory of if you bring impeachment and you fail to convict, it is a political loss and you look foolish. Okay, that changes the dynamic even in the House of Representatives to bring impeachment. There's no doubt an impeachment resolution could pass on January 4th. I, th I think the votes would be there if people were voting what they thought should happen with this president. But that's probably why the House leadership ain't going to bring it up on the House floor because they see they also have to have the goods to deliver for a conviction in the Senate. Okay, but how much is Bill Clinton actually, how much does he actually fit in with the thesis? Because the book is removing unpopular, unable, or unfit chief executives. He was none of those things. This was an attempt to remove someone who was popular and got a lot more popular and certainly able and fit. Right. I tell you, he was not unpopular, Based if you go based on polls. He was not unable to do the job, but a majority of the House of Representatives thought he was unfit for the office but then due fitness to the becomes, perjury with the grand jury. Right, but fitness then at that point becomes uh, just yeah. a self-fulfilling prophecy. Fitness is once, once we decide you're unfit, it becomes true. Well, that's it. I mean, high crimes and misdemeanors, as you mentioned, aren't well defined in the Constitution, but it seems to be that impeachment is a remedy for an unfit president, somebody who is harming the political fabric itself. Things like committing perjury, things like abusing power, things like obstructing justice definitely fall into that category and have been used as articles of impeachment for everybody from Lyndon Johnson, I'm sorry, Andrew Johnson through Dick Nixon through Bill Clinton. That is what impeachment is about. Now, the fact is the Senate didn't agree that there was worthy removal. Why? Because of that, that word high, and with Bill Clinton, we got to be careful how we use that word, uh -huh. but the idea was that the high in high crimes and misdemeanors has to do with whether it affects matters of state. And they said, yes, Bill Clinton committed perjury. Yes, Bill Clinton obstructed justice. But he was doing it to cover up a personal affair. He wasn't doing it in order to exploit the government for his own uh, pocketbook or to actually destroy the government in some way. So that's, I think, how senators came down on it and said, yes. The things he did were abhorrent. Personally, he shouldn't have done it. But you don't remove a president for doing those things when it's about a personal issue. Okay, and that is why there, in the last week, there was a question or a debate question or uh, they'd throw a hypothetical to, you know, a newsman would throw a hypothetical to a pundit. Do you think this, what we know about Donald Trump paying off a porn star to 
to uh, subvert campaign finance laws. You know, is that alone impeachable? And then the debate, if you want to say yes, you would talk about, you know, the threat to democracy and how it also, there was the attendant um, blind eye to any Russian interference that went along with it. And if you want Mm -hmm. to say no, you would analogize it to Bill Clinton, maybe John Edwards, but since Clinton was president, you'd find enough Mm -hmm. overlap. Oh, it's about the embarrassment of an affair. Now, I don't think it's even worth getting into the hypothetical because I think a lot of other things are going to come out so that we won't be asking ourselves, oh, is this FEC violation uh, sufficient to impeach the president? But what do you think of that question? Right. It really goes back to a line that I found from Gerald Ford before he was president. He was involved in the House of Representatives with uh, an impeachment of a judge. And he said, you know, high crimes and misdemeanors and therefore impeachment is whatever the House of Representatives decides it is. Mm -hmm. And that is it's left up to each individual member to decide, does this rise to that threshold? Well, I got to tell you, there's a difference between lying about a personal affair because you're embarrassed if it gets out and lying about an affair by paying money when it comes to an election campaign, trying to silence someone during the election campaign for the purpose of getting elected that changes things a bit, doesn't it? I think that, that's a different dynamic for why you're doing it than, oh, I'd be embarrassed if somebody finds that I like women who aren't my wife. Well, there was plenty of proof of that, and that Donald Trump does not appear to be ashamed by any of that side of it. It appears to have been linked to the campaign itself. So that that is something that some people on the Hill could interpret. But that's only one thing. And there are several other things that sure look like the kinds of things the founders were talking about in terms of corruption getting into office or in terms of abusing the power of the office to protect oneself against criminal investigations. Those are the things that, honestly, I'm interested in two things going forward. One is what the special counsel investigation finds because the investigatory tools that the special counsel has are well beyond what we've seen in public reporting. And then number two, I want to see the actual articles of impeachment because if they have specific acts that are, no kidding, obstruction of justice, um, that's going to be a lot harder for people just to excuse away. Yeah, and to get to let our audience in on this, how many times have you sat across a desk or a table or touched knees with uh, Robert Mueller? Oh, I did not count the times, but it was five or six days a week for more than a year when I was his daily intelligence briefer. I was at CIA. He was director of the FBI. And I got to know the way he thinks really well and know how he approaches complex issues and things like this. And I have no shortage of faith based on evidence of working with him, that if there's somebody who will not let any stone go unturned, uh, it's Bob Mueller. Okay, I have two more questions. One is a recent poll showed that 62% of Americans think that Trump has been untruthful about the Russian probe. And one might say, oh, that's a clear majority. And I might say, what the hell's wrong with the other 38%? Um, (laughs) Because history happens, we think it's inevitable. And I'm really familiar through Slow Burn and other reading, I'm really familiar Mm -hmm. with how late in the game it was for the public to turn on Nixon. What's the Mm -hmm. usual course of public opinion? Is it late to the game? Or right now, we in a position where a surprisingly significant part of the public is still not seeing what is in clear sight about the unfitness or inability of the chief executive, and therefore he's not as unpopular as he needs to be. Yeah, we get into some issues of psychology and framing here in terms of our people seeing it and excusing it away. Are people seeing it but not understanding it? Or are people literally not seeing it? That is, they don't see because of the polarized media. Right, right. They're siloed in their information. They literally don't see these things. Um, I was shocked just recently to see that 
when Michael Flynn was in court and there was supposed to be a sentencing going on. It was the headlines on virtually every media outlet out there. And then I saw on Fox News, the the main story was about whether uh, cookies are male or female. Uh And I thought, now I'm beginning to understand that 62-38% because when you've got people who aren't seeing the news as it is reported through most outlets – if they're only getting their news through one or a few primary outlets that don't cover that same information, well, they're literally not seeing the situation the same way as the rest of us. We haven't had a president who from beginning to end, which is the way it's looking, has had this low of a floor. The the, the issue is how come it hasn't moved lower with some of these revelations coming out? Right, and that's, that's hard to and say. that's my that question. Information are, we, bias. are we in a unique position in terms of mm-hmm. here? Let us compare this president to the amount of evidence that has been presented to argue right. for his uh, inability to do the job. Compare it to other presidents at this point. Is this president doing better? Yep. He's doing better in that he still has, in a sense, part of that polarized media and even part of this party he hijacked to to support him. Now, what does that mean, though? Well, either you have what we would call the elites saying, you know what? We realize that the general public isn't all seeing the same information, and so it's incumbent upon us in, let's say, an impeachment hearing or then the conviction trial in the Senate. It's incumbent upon us to look at the actual information rather than the media spin. Okay, so that's job one. But Jim Comey said it in April of this year earlier, as you referred to. He said, short of something that is catastrophic, we should not impeach the president because that's a decision that belongs with the American people and they need to be responsible for doing this directly instead of having it done for them indirectly. Well, tell you what, 62 to 38% would put this in one of the most catastrophic elections in history if those numbers are somewhat relevant to how the election turns out. Right. And here's my last question. In the past, when we have gotten rid of the president by nonviolent means, when we've decided, we've, our elected officials, got together and decided, well, this went poorly, um, has America actually flourished as a result? I know the lesson of Watergate, and after Watergate, there were all these sunshine laws and uh, reforms swept through Congress and our national politics. But what about the other times? I got to tell you, in writing this book, I felt like I was going to a very dark place. I was writing about presidents who had severe depression and were incapacitated, unable to make decisions, including Abraham Lincoln for part of the time he was in the White House. I was writing about people who were actually taken out by assassins. I was writing stories about presidents who lost their own parties and got kicked out of their own party while president. This is a dark political history. But by the end, I realized, wait a minute, I'm looking at this the wrong way. The story here isn't about all the bad presidents we've had. The story here is how we have survived as a country, even thrived as a country, because we have actually gotten through some crappy leaders and the system has worked. What makes us unique isn't the fact that we elect leaders. Every country selects a leader somehow. What makes us unique is we have a method every four years and sometimes not four years, less or more, but we have a system by which through several means we can get rid of presidents without going into a civil war or a coup every single time. That leaves me feeling somewhat optimistic that when we go through a time like this, we end up getting stronger as a result, even if the process itself doesn't feel that way. All right. I know I I said I was done with my questions, but I just have one more because you raised it. Are cookies Mm -hmm. male or female? I think cookies are whatever you want them to be. You can make that cookie. It's, It's one of those where you project onto the cookie what you need the most at that moment. And I've had some... Some really good cookies that I honestly didn't know and I didn't care. Sweet. 
David Priest is the author of How to Get Rid of a President, History's Guide to Removing Unpopular, Unable, or Unfit Chief Executives. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Thanks for the chat. It was fun. And now the spiel. Louis C.K. performed a set at the Long Island Comedy Club Governors. He has been playing there in the Comedy Cellar a few times a week for the last couple weeks. But this time, someone in the audience recorded the set and put it on the internet, which gave rise to the CNN headline, Comedian Louis C.K. Mocks Parkland Shooting Survivors in Leaked Audio. Chicago Sun-Times headline, Louis C.K. reportedly heard mocking Parkland survivors, non-binary youth. In a comedy club as part of a comedy set. Those headlines make it sound like he was yelling out things on the M23 bus or that he called into C-SPAN's Washington Journal. Louis from the Lower East Side with a piece of his mind. It turns out, something new we learned, that when a not very funny to begin with comedy bit gets summarized by CNN's over a holiday weekend headline writer does not improve, one could argue it gets a bit worse. The Chicago Tribune weekend copy desk, not as good a source of punch up as the Friars, just saying. But it wasn't punching up, it was punching down that Louis C.K. was accused of. To quote the Twitter moments feed, and by the way, that is the worst hallmark line since happy absentee Father's Day, but the Twitter moments feed said Louis C.K. is accused of punching down after footage leaked of him telling jokes about non-binary people and school shooting survivors. Okay, there's a lot about the Louis C.K. thing that I don't find that interesting, like the fact that his jokes weren't all that good and his targets didn't deserve them, but also that, yes, it was a club set, not a polished finish set, and he's still figuring things out. That we know, I don't want to get into that. Those are kind of tedious, but there are a couple things that interest me. And one is how Louis used to introduce verboten thoughts to the audience and how he does it now. And the second thing is this idea of punching down. So on that note, here's Joy Behar on today's view. He's out there kicking, uh, what do you call that? Punching down, Mm -hmm. as we call it in the comedy world. Mm -hmm. There's so many targets to punch up to. There's Trump, there's everything going on in the world. There's Brexit, if you want to go there. (laughs) There's a million things to go after. Why would you pick kids who are suffering because of gun violence? Pick the NRA. Well, Trump and the NRA are such prominent whipping posts, they're almost like stations of the comedic cross by now. Yeah, many Americans want the cathartic comedy of targets that deserve targeting. I think Louis C.K. has always seen it differently. He's always been more interested in eschewing the familiar and reaching for the third rail. So a rule to have a rule, an edict against punching down, it's a silly notion. No such rule ever existed. Because what it does is it proscribes topics. It says these are the good ones, those are the bad ones. And everything, depending on execution, can be done. Punch up, down, sideways, or south. If you don't think Louis used to punch down, you don't know comedy, every comedian you think of as a brave speaker of truth, or even just a decent getter of laughs, has talked about a group with less privilege than his or her own. Louis did it. Richard Pryor did it. Very nice to be here. Lovely to be here. This is exciting for me. I used to be a teacher, you know? I used to teach English to high school dropouts in the South Bronx. Huh? Do you understand what I'm talking about? 
You know the kind of kids who go to jail because they kill their parents? Then they send them to me to teach them the difference between who and whom. This is the job that I had, ladies and gentlemen. And I'm the schmuck, I would try to make it relevant. I'd say, whom do you wish to murder, not who? That was from 1988, an early HBO special. In that special, she called Diana that little anorexic princess over there, which I take no offense at, by the way. But if she said it now, it'd be 20 minutes of hot topics on The View. Behar also joked that she didn't like Grand Canyon mules, saying, I don't trust an animal who wears a hat with holes in it for his ears. I found that very funny. I think what really is going on with most of the Louis C.K. reaction isn't about who he punched, or even the whip and crackle of his jabs. Most of it boils down to one truth, which I never had to think of before, but it is a plainly true fact that if you have a burning hatred for someone, you will not find that person funny. Now, to be fair, a lot of critics of his set just flat out said, we're not really criticizing his set. We're criticizing him as a person. We find what he did horrible, and so we will no longer be able to find him funny if we ever did. By the way, that's fair. That is a critic clearly telling you what his or her motivation is. On the other hand, I think a lot of the comedy critics are confusing their hatred of Louis with fault-finding in his jokes. Now, here's the complication. His jokes weren't that good. A lot of them weren't that good. They may have had a premise that could go somewhere, but then they just land lazily with punchlines or tags about using the fat kid as a human shield in a school shooting, or Louis saying he's not a they or them. He wants to be known as a there, a location. And that location is, and then he uses a crude term for your mother's genitals, which is unfunny because it's unfunny and not because it's insensitive, but because it is insensitive It does need to clear a higher bar for funny, and it doesn't come close to doing that. So with all that stipulated, here's the other fascinating phenomenon that's at play. Louis has always dealt with the ways in which we process wrong thoughts, dangerous thoughts. There was this bit on his brilliant 2015 special, Oh My God. I have like the thing I believe, the good thing. That's the thing I believe. And then there's this thing. And I don't believe it, but it is there. It's always this thing and then this thing. It's become a category in my brain that I call, of course, but maybe. I'll give you an example. Okay, like of course, of course, children who have nut allergies need to be protected. Of course, we have to segregate their food from nuts have their medication available at all times. And anybody who manufactures or serves food needs to be aware of deadly nut allergies. Of course. But maybe, maybe if touching a nut kills you, you're supposed to die. When Matt Zeller cites of New York Magazine reviewed that routine, which he said ranked with the best of George Carlin. He noted that Louis made sure that we felt the innate horror of even thinking such thoughts. Quote, CK is a humanist comic who goes too far with good reason to see what he's capable of thinking and saying, then wonder if it's just him or if there's some universal fear or longing or mania there. So to Matt Zeller's sights, it was Louis grappling with the badness of the thought 
that made for an exquisite tension. The humanity was born of thinking the bad thing, knowing it was bad, and then not knowing what to do with it. Now, a less high-minded interpretation would be that Louis excelled at creating permission for us to laugh at some horrible thoughts. And the great trick is to acknowledge that we all have horrible thoughts and then to establish a conceit which allows for the dissemination of the horrible thoughts into polite company. That is a classic comic trope. Here's a tape of the comedian Barry Sobel talking to Johnny Carson 30 years ago. I do a routine uh, about liberal people. How I don't know if you ever argue with someone about stereotypes. Liberals, you know, you got to go, fine, okay, no stereotype is true. Fine, nothing, nothing is the way you imagine. Filipinos don't eat dogs. Okay, fine. You know, a lot of Italian businesses are very legitimate. Fine. You know, I've never seen an Italian woman with a mustache. Arabs don't smell. Jewish people are always picking up a check. Okay, fine. Right. Chinese people are excellent drivers. Fine. Here's Dom Herrera. He had this way of saying offensive things in his routine about not saying offensive things in his routine. I am not one of these vile or vulgar comedians. I say only cute words. Excuse me, I have to poop. Excuse me, I have to poop. Not I have to pinch a loaf or to cap a squat, to roll some logs or to heave a Havana. These are disgusting things, and I don't talk like that. Do you? So Louis also does this with his of course but maybe shtick, which pivoted on a good man's quest not to be terrible. Whereas in the routine that was just leaked from the comedy club, he straight up engages in just the stuff that's terrible. The audience in the club cackled, but a lot of people who heard it or discovered it through those premium purveyors of comedy content, the Chicago Tribune, didn't think it was shockingly or delightfully or transgressively terrible. They thought it was just terrible. Louis' latest routine dispenses with any of the pretense of pretending to care about societal approval. But it is a work in progress. Still, we have to say, if the act he finally lands on, not the act he's tinkering with the club, but the act that he presents on stage and says, this is my act, if that has the amount of straight-ahead vitriol in it that we heard on the leaked tape, then we'll all be justified in saying Louis C.K. is satisfied to connect only with that part of the audience who laughs at an artless jab of a finger in the eye and who calls that commentary. But there is still a chance, I believe, that he can try to reach out to a broader group, if he cares to, if he's not too bitter or self-pitying, if he's interested in being closer to the comedian who had the ability and desire to mean more to people than just the sum of his nastiest thoughts and deeds. And that's it for today's show. Hey, The Gist has a newsletter. We haven't had a five-day week to properly plug it, but it comes out Every Saturday, it's at slate.com slash gist news. I will answer the following Barry Sobel related trivia question in the newsletter. As you know, Barry Sobel starred in uh, Revenge of the Nerds Part 2, Nerds in Paradise. How is that movie deeply connected to First Amendment law? Nerds in Paradise, First Amendment law. What's the connection? Daniel Schrader and Pierre Bienname produced the gist. They know there must be. 50 ways to lose a president. Oh, there must be 50 ways to lose a president. You alienate the folk, poke. It's quite a tough trick, dick. 
You get sent to the grave, Abe. These get kind of dark. TJ Raphael, a senior producer of Slate Podcast, she knows that a two-thirds vote in the Senate is tough to pass. But if they do that, the vote is sure to last. It's one of 50 ways to lose a president. Your re-election won't last, Taft. If you're like Millard, he was publicly pilloried. Fillmore was a bore. You suffer from a comparison to William Henry Harrison. Just put on a coat, Bill, and you won't catch a cold. You may make the entire press corps pissed. And they say you know you've lost America when you've lost the gist, which is actually what they said to Andrew Johnson. Oomperu depru duperu, and thanks for listening.